0: Thank you, uh, Professor Lee. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak to your class. Plus, uh, when Mary Denicia invited me, I always found it was hard to say no to her. She was an extraordinary representative of the students when she served on the Board of Regents. And Mary, we're just thrilled that you came to U of A for your graduate work. So, thank you for thinking of me when you put together this lineup. I also recognize that I am following um, The main boss of all my bosses, and I'm speaking of course of uh, Regent Calderon that you had last week. Um, It's uh, always an honor to follow uh, Regent Calderon. He has, you know, he's a a graduate of our law school, so he's an alumnus of VA as well as NAU. And uh, he's based in Phoenix where he has a very successful law practice. But since becoming president of the board, I think it's safe to say he has spent more time in Tucson Uh, and supporting the University of Arizona than any other uh, Phoenix-based Regent in the history of this uh, University. Of course we've had Tucson-based Regents like Fred Boyce who are remarkable in their presence at the University, but I think we should all acknowledge uh, Regent Calderon's extra efforts to make that two-hour drive, sometimes two hours just to get out of Phoenix, but generally speaking, a two-hour drive to come down here and be in Tucson. So I'm very pleased to follow him. What I would like to do uh, today is offer a few prepared remarks. I'm going to try and keep those brief uh, because at least I remember from my days of lecturing in classes, whether they were small or introductory lecture, introductory physics classes of 200, I remember the best part of the class itself, certainly for me, was to get into dialogue, was to have discussion and interaction to learn what's on your mind as opposed to what I hope will be useful background material that I'm going to provide, background material and facts, and also in my perception, higher education, the economy, whether we have a crisis or an opportunity or both. So I'll I'll probably spend about 30 minutes doing that, and then uh, the burden is on your shoulders to step forward and to uh, pose questions, uh, offer opinions, uh, and then collectively we'll I think this will be very productive for all of us. So, again, thank you, uh, Professor Lee, for having me. Uh, Thanks uh, to you, Mary, uh, for initiating the contact. Um, Probably, you've all noticed that the state of Arizona is having some troubles with its economy. I spent yesterday and the day before in Phoenix talking to legislators and the governor. Uh, They, I think, realize that as well. But, in fact, we all have very different approaches to what it means and how we can dig our way out. One thing is for sure. It's impossible not to see the damage that this economic situation is occurring is causing across the state. It is both significant and deeply troubling, not just for the numbers, but this is important, for what it signifies about our priorities, as a state, and as a people. We know that the United States, and indeed most of the world, are in the grips of what is arguably the greatest economic downturn since the Great Depression. But here in Arizona, we have a situation that is dramatically worse than many states. Some of the causes we couldn't have predicted. Some of the causes are self-inflicted. Excuse what I mean. The economy in Arizona has never diversified as much as it should have. And in recent years, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, it's been overly reliant on construction, in particular housing construction. The collapse of this housing bubble has hurt more in states like Arizona, Nevada, California, Florida than in other states that didn't have the housing booms. One factoid, from the spring for the fall of 2007, six month period, Arizona went from being first to last among the 50 states in job creation. In just six months, how do we cope with that? Sort of like coping with a hundred million dollar drop in state support uh, in six month period. In addition to that global economic situation and the specifics about housing in the state of Arizona, there have also been public policy decisions here in Arizona that, I would argue, have made the situation, the challenge, maybe not the opportunity, far greater than in other places. We had a huge influx of people into Arizona in the early and mid-90s, the early part of this century. When we were either one or two in percentage growth in population, sharing that distinction with the state of Nevada. And what that generated was a corresponding surge in home prices, housing sales, and of course state revenues climbed because of this. I know I was one like many of you that came here and managed to, to buy high um, when we bought our house here. The old adage: buy high, sell low, or something along the lines. <laughs> the problem was not that there was a surge, but based on that temporary surge in income, decisions were made to permanently give away income, cut taxes. A couple weeks ago I was in Chile for an astronomy meeting and meeting some of the newly elected government officials down there. We had a lot of exchange with uh, students in faculty in Chile. Fernando Martinez, for example, who heads up our Bio5 program in Australian. And what impressed me most was when the copper prices went sky high, you probably know that Chile is the world's greatest copper exporter, slightly ahead of Arizona. When the prices went high, They didn't just assume that it was going to always be that way and throw away other income or implement new programs that would require that level of support forever and ever. They banked it, they saved it, and so as a result, uh, while they are having their challenges, uh, they're not laying off people. They're actually growing their educational enterprise. We didn't do that. Since the mid-1990s, a series of tax cuts have eliminated what Marshall Best, those of you that don't know or know of Marshall Best, he's in our Eller College, he is an extraordinary economist, he is a leading economist, and he estimates that the tax cuts, the money we gave away when we thought life would always be good, he estimates that we've given away $2.6 billion in current state revenues, recurring money, not one time. So even with this extraordinary challenge, this, Difficult economy that grips us the tax cuts implemented over the last decade and a half are very nearly equal to the entire state budget deficit that we currently face. Right now, and these numbers change hourly, if not daily, right now the state has obligations of between nine and ten billion dollars. These are recurring obligations, but we're collecting only about six point four billion. Again, these are estimates, maybe next Monday it will be 6.2, who knows. So after two years of relentless budget cutting, there's a gap in the state budget still of three, three and a half billion dollars. Federal stimulus funding, and I emphasize federal stimulus funding is one-time money. It's a one-time revenue. That has softened the impact here at the University of Arizona, and throughout the state, to some degree. But when you take the federal stimulus money, and you combine it with what one might call the fireside sale of many of the state's buildings, sort of like burning your furniture to stay warm, you combine those actions, you combine fund sweeps, delayed payments to the universities, I'll come back to that later, cutting of the salaries of state employees, Applying additional cuts and closures to state agencies. The one thing that the public in Arizona seems to be concerned about is the closure of the rest stops on the interstates. They're not worried about the closure of the universities. Okay. When you do all of that, all of that, the state is still two billion dollars short of balancing the budget this fiscal year. And that number economists predict, will go to 3 billion next year, and without any increase in revenues, you're starting to pick up my theme here, without any increase in revenues, there will be deficits of that size or larger as far as you can project. I want this to be absolutely as forceful and clear as possible. There is no way for the state of Arizona to cut its way out of this problem. Whatever your philosophy, if you do the math, it doesn't work. We have to plug a three billion dollar annual gap going forward. Let's take the university system, NAU, ASU, UA. The total state funding to these three universities is around nine hundred million dollars right now. Okay, so close out three universities, and you haven't even solved one third of the problem. The prisons. Prisons get more state money now than universities. That might say something about values in the state. But remember, don't be too hard on our legislature. We elect them. They have a tough job. The prisons get about a billion dollars. So close all the prisons. Release all the prisoners. Lay off all the guards and the administrative personnel. You still have a billion dollars to go to close the gap. you close the universities. you close the prisons. You're still a billion dollars short. You know, even with inflation, that's real money. So when you do the math, you realize it doesn't work. There are indeed parts of the budget that can't be cut. Voter mandates have created formulas and protections for K-12, a lot of K-12, not all of it. For Medicare, certain types of health spending, and some of these expenditures are required by the federal government to get matching funds. We recently had an example of the state deciding to not accept GME, Graduate Medical Education funds, from the feds. In doing so, just locally, um, the state saved about $3 million not supporting our hospitals here. But that meant the hospitals lose $9 million from the feds. But you can decide whether that's a good deal or not. It leaves the hospitals $12 million short. The take-home message to this first set of uh, comments is there's no way to solve this problem by cuts alone. It just doesn't work. Math isn't magic. It's real. So now we look ahead, and in fact the legislature has taken some action recently at the encouragement of the government, the governor. In May, there will be a ballot measure to create a temporary one-cent sales tax. If it passes, and that's a big if, look to our state to the west, California rejected similar kinds of measures, and then people were stunned when certain services were closed. If it passes, it would raise next fiscal year, not this year, somewhere around $900 million, Maybe a billion. Okay? So, if this passes, it is one part, but only one part, of dealing with this huge budget deficit that we have in Arizona. Now, if you say the T word, not cheap party, but taxes, and if you say the T word, people get all worried. And that's understandable. People are worried that they're paying too much, that the services that are provided maybe aren't the ones that are priorities for them. And of course, the sales tax has uh, that feature that it falls disproportionately on the medias and society. The city of Phoenix has recently stepped forward to enact a two cent sales tax on food. And show you how desperately people are looking for money. That's about as regressive as you get. When I say these things, I'm not trying to be critical of the people that are doing it. I'm just pointing out that there are multiple options and everybody, Let's assume everybody has their good spirit and they're trying to work together. Everybody's trying to find a combination that works. Okay? A combination that doesn't work is just cutting everything. We don't have enough stuff, enough to cut. So sales tax is one. But if you talk with um, Professors Vest, Charney, and others who understand economics far better than I ever will, you find that they propose a broader approach to redesigning the entire tax structure, the income structure for the state of Arizona. In fact, a little over a year ago, January 2009, some of the legislative leaders got kind of frustrated with us in the universities because we were criticizing them a little bit. And uh, they said, okay, you smarties, (laughs) my term's not theirs, they were much more respectful. Okay, if you're so clever, you tell us what will work. We said, great, that's just what we want. We've got a lot of really smart people that understand economics, that understand public policy. And so the three universities put together a white paper and submitted it last January that talked about a broader approach to solving the issue. Not just fixing it temporarily, but solving it. And of course, it got nowhere. Uh, Maybe it wasn't the right answer, but it was a more comprehensive approach than we're seeing right now. The question of taxes is such a, it's fraught with such uh, emotion in this day and age. If you ask people here or anywhere, they will tell you they want, they require basic services. They want good schools. They want access to top flight universities and a variety of options like we have here in Arizona. They want roads, they don't want potholes. There's been a lot about potholes in the city of Tucson and the county lately. They want to have good police and fire, EMTs. They want to have state parks that are open, recreational opportunities. But then you ask people, and I of them. i my people too. you ask them, and somehow so many people in this day and age think you can have all that without paying for it. There's a disconnect here. Anna Quinlan, I won't get this quote right, she wrote an article in Newsweek a couple weeks ago about the contradiction of this, her quote, magical thinking." She said, quote, you vote down the school board budget and then complain that Johnny can't read. She went on to say, and again a quote, it's hard to believe that even the most zealous would shrug philosophically if a bunch of kids died of E. coli because we hadn't hired enough food inspectors. There is this old dictum, and it applies in many cases. You get what you pay for. Or maybe I would rephrase it, you don't get what you don't pay for. You might not get everything you do pay for, but you don't get what you don't pay for. Bringing it back a little closer to home, this also applies to universities. So, let me tell you what the budget impact has been for the University of Arizona, and what all of us, not just those of us in the administration, but all of us who are a community, have been dealing with in the last 18 months. The number that is probably seared into everybody's brain, because I've been saying it maybe too often, is we've experienced a 100 million dollar cut in our recurring state budget. That's almost 25%. We've gone from 440 to 340. dollars there's some one time money's in and one time money's out, but I'm a scientist, I deal with two significant digits, I can't think beyond that level. So, figure 100 million. In addition to that, We've had to deal with delays in payments. Rollover is the term. Last one in December. The state couldn't make its payment to us. That was about 30 million dollars. We did make our payroll payments. We didn't lay people off. We didn't close the labs. Uh, we didn't shut down classes. Uh, I guess there were classes at the end of December, were there? Although oh, some uh, still in class. And so what we did was we had to borrow and use our reserves. That costs money. You can't, interest rates are low, but you can't borrow for nothing these days. The state has failed to honor multiple prior commitments to critical projects that were already underway. The College of Medicine in Phoenix is one good example. And I say this as a fact, not because I'm trying to criticize the state. Let me repeat, they have a very difficult job to do. I think some of them are trying to tackle it, I think some of them aren't, but the point is they have a difficult job. I mentioned earlier the elimination of GME, Graduate Medical Education Funds, where we saved a dollar and then threw three other dollars out the window from the bid. How have we coped with this? Well, ballpark figures. We've eliminated over 600 positions. Fortunately, most of those have been through attrition or not filling empty positions. These are not just staff positions. These are faculty positions as well. We haven't laid faculty off, but all of you in departments know that you have not been able to hire those tremendous faculty that want to come here. We've closed two dozen academic programs merged nine academic programs, eliminated a college, consolidated four colleges into one. A lot of these are ongoing. You can't just do that at the top of a hat. It takes consideration. It takes thought if you're going to continue to provide the services. And you can't shut down the university while you're figuring this out. One thing I will compliment our faculty and our, our graduate teaching assistants. This last fall and this spring semesters, Students enroll for a significantly higher number of credit hours on the average than ever before. So the students, maybe they're rushing to graduate, and the faculty and and the the instructors have really stepped up and provided those classes. I'm not saying everybody got all the classes they needed. There's still some bottlenecks. But if you look at the gross numbers, people have stepped forward and so students are able to capture more student credit hours per student. Than ever before. That is quite an accomplishment and kudos to the people who have done that. Those are some numbers about what has been lost and done, but there's there's the unseen part of the iceberg here and, and this comes to what I hope will be the focus of our conversation, the, the people aspect of this. We can all do the numbers and some of you have heard me say if it's just numbers on a spreadsheet we can figure this out, we can cope with it. It's the personal side of it. It's the philosophy of where this state is going. The people who lead this state, do they want higher education? It's the philosophy of can we keep our talented people here, whether they are students, undergrad, grad professional, faculty, staff, as they begin to see that this state really doesn't want a higher education system in its current form. So how do we we convey a sense of... uh, optimism, a sense that we can master this in the middle of uh, this fiscal, this numerical challenge. And that's important. We continue to have our faculty uh, sought after by other universities. And it's not just, quote, those rich private schools. A lot of them suffered big losses in their endowment. But it's also public schools. We fought off a big offer uh, made by the University of California system. Just recently you go, wow, the University of California, isn't California falling off the edge of the continent. I mean, how can they do that? They can do that because they have a commitment to excellence. And if you look at the faculty here, you look at the students and the staff, you find excellence. Excellence can be in a precarious situation. We're entering our third year with no money for salary increases, whether it's faculty or our professional staff. That only hurts retention. It hurts recruitment. Boy, looking over one and Jeff, another guy. I mean, if, if we were able to recruit faculty now, wouldn't it be phenomenal? The people we would get here. Oh my. Turning again to the the people aspect, which is the most worrisome. I, I want to just give you some quotes, and I won't identify the speakers. Because the real troublesome concern is not where we are, but how are our leaders responding and what role do they see education playing? John Hager, who's president of NAU, recently was told by legislative leaders at a hearing that they were going to shut down the universities and slam the door forever. Quote. Another legislator made it clear to me he was he couldn't wait. He was relishing the arrival of fiscal year 12 when they could cut us significantly more when we were not protected by the U.S. Department of Education maintenance of effort, which is a condition that we as a state, through our governor, thank you very much, Governor Brewer, agreed to in taking federal funds, the so called State Fiscal Stabilization Fund, SFSF. Another legislator said, We don't need state universities. The private sector can handle it. You can all go to the University of Which builds an important niche. I'm not criticizing them. They've been very successful. I don't think that's the only option people in Arizona want. These individuals are not speaking for our leaders as a whole. But don't mistake the fact that they are influential and they are speaking their true minds. And so, how do we turn this around? I mean, I wrote this, I shouldn't say this. Let me ask you what person with more than a room temperature IQ (laughs) thinks that businesses want to come to a state with a broken education system, whether it's K 12 or higher ed? Lousy schools producing cheap degrees that create individuals who may have a career waiting tables. I waited tables when I was in college, okay, but that's not. The only thing we need in Arizona. It's, it's just mind-boggling. So, you juxta- juxta- juxtapose juxtapose that with the era that we as a state and we as a nation are entering into. We are into. Education is imperative. Everything you can think about in terms of this nation's health, the physical health of its people, That depends on new advances in science. The health of its economy, that depends on those who are tech savvy, who understand how to interconnect all the traditional disciplines and who can operate in this diverse and rapidly changing world business culture. Speaking of culture, we need people that appreciate these multiple cultures, that are multilingual, that can understand the humanistic side, the social side of how you bring people together to be successful. National security. We need people there who not only are tech savvy, but who have an appreciation for and an understanding of other cultures. It goes on and on and on. All of this requires a robust, and I would argue, research centered university at the University of Arizona. As an aside, we just got some numbers from the National Science Foundation. Not a beauty contest. Okay. these are hard numbers. They calculate, this was fiscal year 08. They're kind of slow. They don't have the 09 numbers yet. Okay. The competitive grants that have been awarded to every university. Competitive, not earmarks, not pork. competitive. And once again, the University of Arizona is number one in the nation in the physical sciences. Number one. We were number two behind a little school in California called Caltech. We're now number one ahead of them, ahead of MIT, ahead of Johns Hopkins. Okay? This is a remarkable achievement and it's done because of the students and the staff and the faculty at this university and the infrastructure that the people of Arizona have been able to create down through the years and we simply cannot let crumble. That's $200 million competitive that come to this state, that foster these ideas, that stimulate the intellectual imagination of young people, at least not so young people sometimes, so that we can address the nation's needs. You don't have that if you don't have a research center university. So my statement is the future success of this state depends upon the success of the University of Arizona. And our mission to foster access, quality, and discovery. And I've been delivering that message seems like for a decade only been a little over three years. And I will say that a year ago December when um, Governor Wade Brewer was ready to take her position, she was very gracious, uh, heard me a lot, heard other people a lot, and she has been, by and large, a strong voice amid this chaos in support of of education. So now let's look ahead. July 2011. Why is that important? Well, it starts fiscal year 12 for the states, not quite fiscal year 12 for the feds, right? Their fiscal year beginning October 1. But at that point, the agreement by the governor and by the state of Arizona to observe the maintenance of effort uh, is no longer enforced. Maintenance of effort says if you as a state take these SFSF, state fiscal stabilization funds, from the feds as part of the ARRA, America Reinvestment and Recovery Act, then you as a state cannot cut either K-12 or higher ed below the FY06 state funded levels. Okay. So as a system, we are now at the FY06 level. This university happens to be below that level. How can that be? You say, well ASU and NAU are actually above that level. Okay. But as a system, and that's where the calculation is done, we're at that level. So the state agreed, taking these dollars, a few hundred million dollars, we're going to do that. But, come fiscal year 12, all that's wrong. And you heard the remarks that some legislatures have been telling me. So, this is the cliff, the chasm, whatever you want to call it. How do we deal with that? We have worked long and hard with the Tucson and the University of Arizona community. And we are now at a point where there is no more cuts. There are no more cuts, background that this university can take and still sustain the quality of the degrees. The quality that brought you students here, and that you expect to be maintained, not only when you graduate, but 10, 20, 30 years after you graduate. That is the promise that we have to keep. And that's why, in addition to cuts, when you talk to anybody at this university, they felt those cuts. In addition to cuts, we have to look at the revenue side. Now this gets painful. And this couldn't be more timely because in a very short time we're going to release a letter recommending tuition and fee increases for next year. This is when, you know, the water bottle should be thrown. This is really I can't emphasize enough how painful this situation is. Um my own opportunity to go to college was because of financial aid. My wife's opportunity was by financial aid, and that's where we met. Sounds good. As we both went to college. I've seen the difference that a college degree, a quality college degree, can make. It's made a very great difference in my life compared to my sisters who are wonderful, hard-working people but in very different circumstances. Uh, the same thing is true of in my in-laws. And so all of you who are here getting your college degrees, uh, I, I compliment you for whatever sacrifices you and your family are making. So when we talk about tuition and fee increases, it is such a painful, painful topic. I have a history of coming from institutions, California, and North Carolina, and now being at an institution that has celebrated keeping tuition fees low. And there are arguments on all sides. The cynics will tell you that low tuition fees are gifts to the wealthy. Okay. Probably mathematically that's true. But the point is, it's a message that says we're accessible. And so how do we generate income to pre- maintain the quality and yet still send the message that we are accessible to that diverse population that's so important to this university. We have basically three sources of income at this university. We have state support. Four. We have four. State support. We have tuition and fees. We have grants. But when you get a grant, the agency tells you you're going to spend that money. You can't just, oh, I've got this grant, now I'm going to go off and buy a Segway and, you know, do what I have to do. You've got to fulfill the, the requirements of that grant. So that's pretty restricted. True, there's some indirect costs, but we can argue up and down whether indirect costs cover the real indirect costs. And then finally, fourth, there are gifts and the endowment. Okay, We have been doing well, not great. We have been doing well on gifts. Two years ago, we had our best year ever, 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 Some numbers. Two years ago uh, donations to this university were $154 million. Best year ever. Better than even when we were in a campaign. Last year that dropped, no surprise, but it only dropped to $141 million. So there are a lot of people that love this institution and are very very generous. But again, those dollars are directed. Someone says, you will build a practice gym and call it the Richard Jefferson. Jim, with these money, someone says you will endow the Tyler Chair in Economics in the Eller Business School. If you're going to take this two million, these are real examples. We say yes. Most of the time we say We turn down a gift. You know, there are conditions on it. We just can't deal with. But by and large, the discretionary part of donations is about one percent. So we have gifts, we have endowments. What is our endowment? Our endowment actually did pretty well last year. It only dropped by about 16%. Harvard's went down what, 35%? Of course they started with what, 38 billion? Okay. Um, So we were very cautious. We only went down 50%. Since uh, the first of this year we made a nice recovery. But our endowment is small, and in round numbers, it's maybe 500 million. And it's small not because people haven't worked hard on it. It's because we, like a lot of public universities, have been sort of late to the game. You look at the big endowments, they're all the great private universities. And some of the public universities that have been early into this, Virginia, Michigan, Chapel Hill, and the Texas schools, where they have something called the Permanent University Fund that comes from oil. So we have a long way to go to build our endowment. And we are emphasizing that now. Um, But that as a a reservoir to dip into is pretty minimal. So that comes back uh, to the topic of of tuition. And what I have reluctantly concluded is that uh, this state situation we are in is now forcing us to a higher tuition, higher financial aid model. It's not uncommon. It's been used in many places successfully. Virginia. It's not the model that I uh, would choose, but I think we are there. And let me tell you why I think it can work. In spite of the tuition increases that we've had over the last three years, and I'm gonna give general numbers, and I know that they can be irrelevant for any one individual situation, but that's why we have a financial aid office so those individuals come in and we can work with them. Over the last uh, three years, the debt upon graduation of our Arizona residents, undergraduates now, has held virtually constant in spite of the tuition increases. Three years ago it was 17,800. Two years ago it was 17,3. This year it was 17,4. Again, to my way of thinking, that's sort of a flat line. Now, 17,000 is not a small number and it's going to depend on what kind of job you can get, uh, your background. Uh, but the point is, the new model of higher tuition higher aid, that number isn't going up. It's going up slightly for out-of-state students. Combine that with the fact that uh, slightly fewer than half of our students graduate with any debt. Just over half graduate with no debt. Again, that's a tribute to their families and probably to their own working waiting tables or whatever they do while they're in school. I think we have sort of part of a Parameter space here that we can work with higher tuition, higher fees, and much higher financial aid, uh, and still demonstrate with students and their families that we are open for business, we are accessible to everybody, no matter what socioeconomic class you're in, no matter what ethnic background, no matter what your history, provided uh, you get the grades and you qualify to get in. Last fall, in spite of a few articles that the Wildcat put out, okay sometimes we're numerically challenged. Last fall we had the largest, the most diverse, and the most academically prepared class ever in the history of the University of Arizona, and certainly the most academically prepared and diverse class of any of the three universities in the state. So, how do we, how do we go forward on this? I think you have to, you have to gain something of a historical perspective. Maybe it's just because I'm getting old and I'm paying more attention to historical perspectives. Or maybe it's because my wife was a history major and she's B. If you look back at this country and see the role that the commitment to universal basic education has played, it is unparalleled. You've heard about the Morrill Act, created the land-grant universities. It was signed by somebody named Abraham Lincoln. We've all heard about him. Most of the time we do not talk about Lincoln and the, the Morrill Act, but he signed it. 1862, I think it was. And this fostered not just a culture of going to class, but a culture of discovery, of innovation. When people ask me, what good is a research university? What opportunities does it provide to the student, other than sitting in class and having somebody with a microphone or somebody on the whiteboard, I say, you know, this isn't a new concept. It's not a new concept. It goes back to the land-grant universities. Students in the Midwest, They would come to school in the summer and in the winter, because in the fall they had to harvest, and in the spring they had to plant. And while they were in school, they were getting these practical experiences. Here, maybe they were working on mining engineering, maybe on anthropology. Those traditional disciplines, some schools are even called that, Texas A&M, agriculture and mining. So the idea that students come to a university, yes, to get classroom experiences, but also to have hands-on practical experiences isn't new. And that's what a research university provides. It provides that hands-on experience. Whether it is research in one of the world's great libraries, whether it's going on a dig in Greece in the summer, whether it's working in the Bio 5 lab, whether it's sleuthing out the latest set of information on, in linguistics to preserve an almost dead language it's part and parcel of a great educational opportunity. That's what a research university provides. As opposed to just sitting and listening to someone mm-hmm. talking. The Moral Act started it. The GI Bill. World War II. Some people argue that's the greatest economic stimulus package the world has ever known. And it led to investments in the arms race, the space race, the Sputnik, I mean, This is the you're all too young. This is the era that I grew up in where my parents said, oh, you're kind of good at math and science. You ought to be an engineer. Well, I didn't know what an engineer was, but I knew I should be one. Okay? And they thought that, not because they had that background. My dad was an administrator for federal government. My mom, you know, had, took shorthand and typing in, was a secretary. But they knew from the news that engineering and science we important for the country, because the country invested in it. But somehow, right now, not just as a state, although that's where we're focused, but as a country overall, we have lost this focus. We have narrowed our focus to the short term. Not even quarterly reports now, but it's monthly or weekly reports. How have you done for me lately? We've forgotten that this kind of investment in education pays dividends immediately and in the long run. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, so thanks for listening to me. The huge challenge that we face, that I certainly face day in and day out, is how to help our legislative leaders understand this fundamental concept. Not only is the UA dependent, but their success as political leaders depends on the economic drivers that are produced at the University of Arizona and elsewhere. But I'm talking about the UA now. The success of our political leaders depends upon the success of this university, and we want to help. We are part of state, we are part of the solution. So let me just close and hopefully we can have a discussion on whatever you want. The quality of life that our children, our grandchildren, and their grandchildren will experience is going to depend on our support for education, K-12 and higher ed. We have huge challenges in the state and as a nation. Not just the daunting numerical financial challenges of the moment. But the longer term, almost mindset philosophical challenges that we have in this country. There's, I think, a small segment of this country, and it, it isn't confined to one side of a political aisle. There's a small segment of this country that thinks stupid is great. You know, don't, don't get involved with those elites that want to have education and use long, multi-syllabic words. You know, they're just a bunch of elites. You know, it's okay to be kind of average and, you know, just a little bit dumb because, after all, we know what to do by the seat of our pants. Okay. Now, this isn't a new phenomenon in this country. It goes back to the founding fathers. A sort of anti-elitism. Very different than you see in well, certainly a lot of Asian countries where, yeah, you know, education is important. We ought to think that smart hardworking people are good for the, for the society. So, we have to think about, in this country, in this state, how are we going to articulate the importance of having an educated populace? Whether it's an AA degree from a great community college like we have here in Pima, whether it's a bachelor's, master's, professional, Ph.D., whatever it might be. Not because that makes you a better human being, it doesn't, but because it enables you to contribute to this society. It helps you become better thinkers. It helps you become critical questioners. There's not enough critical questioning going on in this country now. We read a blog. That's me right. My God, I read it on blog. Why would I criticize that? And again, that's on the far right and the far left. Doesn't matter. So help us think through how we can articulate the importance of education. Whether it's in Arizona or for this nation as a whole. Because I I fear, and I'm a real optimist, but but I fear that that the pendulum is swinging toward the stupid. And and we, we can't let that happen. Because it's not good for the country. So let me end with that. I'm causing all kinds of trouble for various terms I've used, but uh, the foregoing opinion is mine only and should not be connected with the University of Arizona. Thank you for having me. We have some time for QA. Like.